Uh, hey, this is Bradley. Quick note before we start today's episode. Uh, for those of you who listened to the episode that we released on Tuesday, the audio was terrible. So I just wanted to apologize to our listeners for that. Um, I hope that if you did listen to it, you enjoyed it. I think it was actually one of our better podcasts. We're going to put up a transcript uh, of the episode on the website so that people can can read it if, if they weren't able to listen to it. But just wanted to say uh, sorry and thank you. All right. Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, my guest today is Kiki Friedman, co-founder and CEO of Hey Jane, which is a startup that I think is probably one of the most interesting, important startups out there at the moment. So Kiki, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Sure. So give, give you know, I think the minute you explain what, what Hey Jane is, people will get it right away. But but give the audience this sort of a, the quick version of, of what Hey Jane is. Yeah, absolutely. So we are a digital clinic focusing on stigmatized women's health needs and starting with medication abortion care through telemedicine as our flagship product. And to explain both what that means in terms of the, the criteria and everything else, and then the different steps in the process from someone sort of first coming on, on the app or website, uh, and then ultimately kind of going through the entire process. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start with just what the medication is, because there's often um, sort of low awareness that an abortion pill even exists. Um, so we're using a protocol that's been around since 2000, approved by the FDA for you know decades, um, about 98% effective at ending unintended pregnancies up to 11 weeks, and incredibly safe. It actually has a lower adverse reaction rate um, than Tylenol. And historically, it's been um, dispensed through clinics, which often involves, as you can imagine, extensive travel. Um, 90% of counties have no abortion access whatsoever right now. Um, Often involves walking through very aggressive protesters just to get inside of a clinic. Um, And with all of those barriers, of course, um, a lot of expenses for uh, for that travel, for overnight stays, missed work, um, et cetera. So... Now, with HA and patients can come onto our site, um, fill out um, you know, a very simple form with information about their medical history, uh, chat with the doctor either um, asynchronously through messaging or live if they prefer, and have uh, these medications mailed directly to an address of their choice. And, and what, what kind of medical, over, if, if someone's listening to the thing, I might want to get that, you know, do they need to have any sort of medical care already set up, or does this kind of cover it from soup to nuts? Soup to nuts, yeah. So um, there are, you know, very few contraindications for this treatment, and we are able to screen for them um, through, you know, the digital model. There had previously been sort of a precedent of requiring an in-person ultrasound uh, to get an abortion. And the reasons for that was to sort of confirm how far along the pregnancy was and make sure that it wasn't ectopic, to make sure that it was implanted in the uterus. Um, For several years now, the major medical groups, ACOG, et cetera, have been advising against it. It's not necessary. uh, It's invasive, expensive, doesn't really do what it's supposed to do all that well. Um, And so we are working with what we're calling a a no-touch protocol. Um, This is something we planned on um, working with pre-COVID, but has really been sort of pushed into the mainstream with the pandemic. Uh, so how did you come up with this? What's the origin story? Well, the idea came about um, in summer of 2019. I'd gone to school in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, Missouri is now one of six states in the country that has one abortion clinic left in the entire state. And that summer, it was close to getting shut down. The state was going to refuse to renew its license, and Missouri would become the first state since Roe v. Wade to have zero abortion access whatsoever. Um, This was, you know, a sort of dystopian possibility that that might be the case in the U.S. at that point in time. Um, 
And it was obvious something needed to, to be done. At the same time, there were a lot of really amazing companies um, growing very quickly, uh, focusing on, on men's sexual wellness for the most part via telemedicine. Yeah, yeah we, are, we are investors in Rome. So <laughs> very, very familiar with that story. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, it was such an incredible model for increasing access. And I just started thinking, is it something that could be applied for safe, discreet, affordable abortion access? It's a big idea. Obviously, you're in arguably the single most controversial space and issue that exists. Um, how do you go from, okay, I saw this need and opening in the marketplace to aging coming into fruition? Yeah. So the first step was sort of figuring out like, hey, why hasn't anyone done this before? Um, right. It seems like a good idea. And surely, you know, um, other smart people have thought about it. Um, so I dug into it. And um, the main reason at the time was regulatory. Um, there were laws on the books that had commonly been interpreted as um, prohibiting the mailing of the abortion pill. Our first step was just spending a lot of time with that language and understanding, is that really what, what it means? Um, and not to go into too many of the boring specifics, but essentially it all came down to the definition of the word dispense. Um, the medications had to be dispensed in a clinic, and people had thought that meant sort of hand the pills to the patient within the four walls. Um, but based off research we did, um, we found that that may not necessarily be the case. Um, so you can, you can mail them from the clinic and that sort of beats the legal definition? Yeah, exactly. Dispense via the mail. Um, and that was consistent with a lot of sort of the state definitions we found um, and, um, and, and federal as well. Now, fortunately, I will say during the course of the pandemic, those laws have changed um, and the regulations have, are currently suspended and being uh, reviewed for permanent removal by FDA. Um, so now we have a much more uh, straightforward approach and sort of task ahead of us in, in rolling it out. Uh, but yeah, that is that is where we started. Uh and then, so I, I know you're operational in California, New York, and, and Washington State. Why'd you pick those markets and kind of what is the plan going forward look like? Yeah, so we are focusing on markets that sort of have the highest volume, the most patients that we um, that we can help per launch. Um, and then we did also want to start with some of the states with lower regulatory friction, just because we are still a startup um, and have a lot of other um, startup things to figure out and wanted to make sure that we could really get those in place while also building out our credibility, our reputation, so that as we move into some of the more challenging states, um, you know, we're prepared. So what what's the idea, as you're sort of evaluating jurisdictions and markets, what do the ideal regulations look like for you? Yeah, so we look at two buckets, the sort of telemedicine laws generally, as well as the uh, abortion laws. So on the telemedicine side, we really do look for places that allow for that asynchronous model, meaning, you know, a live consult is not required. We see our patients tend to really prefer the asynchronous model, and it's just more consistent with, with how we um, operate right now. Um, and then on the abortion side, um, we're looking for, you know, allowing um, nurse practitioners and non-MDs to prescribe. Um, as well as it, you know, just being generally legal. <laughs> so there are yeah. about 19 states right now that have creative laws on the books that would um, sort of preemptively limit access to telemedicine abortion, um, requiring in-person visits, et cetera. And so, um, of course, those states are on, on the back burner for now. And are those laws, have they specifically anticipated the notion of kind of digital health around abortion, or do they just try to define abortion as broadly as they could? Um, I think it's a mix, but I do think that many of them did sort of see it coming, which initially surprised me, um, given that it wasn't, um, you know, commonly occurring. Um, but 
uh, yeah, the way they're written do seem do seem to have telemedicine in mind. Got it. Yeah, it's it's, it's funny that most of the time, kind of what what I do, um, the regulators can't anticipate the new technology that will be created. It's almost yeah. everything we invest in or work on is just in a gray right? Uh, and then people sort of have to figure out after the fact. And sometimes it's hard, and sometimes it's, it's, it's a little easier. But um, but yeah, not not surprised. There's like one place that they probably weren't going to be for people yeah. sort of that aggressive. Okay, so 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 I'm sure you guys this question literally a hundred times a day. But <laughs> what do you do? What can you do about Texas? Yeah. So our approach to Texas has primarily um, focused on you know. Uh, cross-state care. So we are running as fast as we can to launch in Colorado and New Mexico, some of these border states, so that in the, you know, current regulatory system under SB8 and, you know, the unfortunate possibility of a post-row world um, after, um, you know, the Supreme Court case in December, uh, you know, traveling to other geographies may become an increasingly important part of the, the care landscape. We, of course, hope that's not the case. It's absolutely sort of a second best solution. But if people do need to travel, we want to make it as easy for them to get care as possible once they are in that neighboring state. And then so like, all right, so let's just say I, a woman lives in El Paso. She's, you know, half an hour or so from the New Mexico border. How does it work? Does she just like get a PO box in New Mexico and then just goes and picks everything up there? And then does she have to take the pill and do the telemedicine visits from New Mexico or can that all happen in Texas? Yeah. So the way it would work is they would have to travel across that state line to do their consult and to receive the medication. It can go to any address, including a PO box. And we are looking for options for same day, uh, more like a a courier type delivery to really limit that time they need to be away from home. Um, As far as you know, do they need to take the pills there? Do they need to complete the abortion? These are things we're still looking into. I think part of like the absurdity and um, maybe lack of scientific understanding within the Texas law is reflected in the fact that it's not really a discrete process, right? Like you take these medications and um, the treatment itself lasts for a couple days and you may have symptoms afterwards. Um, and it's it's just not necessarily obvious how that would be handled. So that is something that we're looking into now. And so I'm, I'm even though you're, as far as I know, not, not a lawyer, I'm sure that, that you pay as much attention to the various legal battles uh, around abortion as anyone. What do you make of the Supreme Court's decision, kind of procedural decision around Texas? And, and more importantly, um, how are you thinking about where this is going to go and how that then affects the problem? Yeah, I mean, frankly, I was surprised um, and, of course, disappointed that SB8 did go into effect. I think many people were not expecting it to get that far. I think the way the law was written was, um, at least in a in, in a short-sighted way, brilliant. It was very creative um, and, um, you know, it's yet to be seen how it can be sort of like uh, – applied to, you know, perverted in other additional ways and applied to things that maybe it wasn't initially uh, thought to. But we'll see. Um, I'm, I'm actually like a bit more concerned about the, mis- uh, you know, Dobbs v. Jackson coming up yep. um, because of the implications that that may have for Roe as a whole. Um, Can you take one second and just explain that to the audience? Yeah. So there's sort of a landmark case coming up, um, likely to be heard in the Supreme Court in early December, that will essentially challenge Roe at its core. It's uh, reevaluating whether um, banning abortions pre-viability is constitutional. Um, If that were to um, 
you know, go the way of overturning Roe. Many states have uh, trigger bans in place that would go into effect immediately, banning abortion access um, as a whole across those states. And that's, you know, the really scary uh, possibility that I think we're looking at. What, so let's say that, that that did happen and it got left to the states completely, um, you know, and then fast forward 24 months later or whatever it is. What does the landscape look like in terms of where abortion is legal and where it's not? Yeah. So, um, well, I would say I think it de- depends on a few other regulatory things in motion right now. We do have the Women he- Women's Health Protection Act uh, that just passed the House is going up against Senate. I don't know um, that folks are super optimistic about it um, passing the Senate. But if it were to, then we would finally get um, the sort of legislative protection of abortion yeah. access. Yeah. Um, and so fingers crossed that um, you know we get some good news there, but we'll see. I, I'd love to see it happen. The Senate might be tough, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, if that doesn't go our way, um, you know, we will see this sort of patchwork model across the different states where all of the states that you might imagine uh, could ban it outright or make it extremely restricted. And then I do think the other states um, will not only sort of uphold their existing standards of access, but will likely invest in increasing it to accommodate more cross-state travel. Um, I do think this is an instance in which telemedicine becomes increasingly important, though, because brick and mortar clinics are overwhelmed as it is. Um, there's currently, you know, an average of an eight day wait to get treatment um, in clinics across the country. And so if now your patient populations are, are growing so substantially because they're accommodating these big neighboring states, uh, you get a real, um, a real logistical problem that doesn't scale as well, of course, as something like telemedicine would. So walk me through kind of the company's future. I think you kind of alluded, at least earlier in in the interview, that this is sort of the the first product of multiple kind of women's healthcare services. How are you thinking about it? Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, this team really did come together to focus on this problem of abortion access. Um, But I think in doing so and in really understanding where we fit within the digital health landscape more broadly, a few sort of interesting learnings have emerged. Um, so one is that in addition to the physical care our patients are seeking, you know, the, the medications that they need in their hands, there is also this real appetite for connection, for community, uh, for these really stigmatized needs. So there's data that two-thirds of women would not talk to their closest friends or family members about their experience. Um, But we know from speaking to our patients that they really want that opportunity to share their stories, hear from others, to normalize their own. And I think having that sort of safe digital space to connect um, will be really key and something we're excited to build out. The other piece um, that we're thinking a lot about is just emotional support uh, facilitated by, you know, professional counselors, um, potentially for future products and, uh, you know, more robust forms of care like therapy or psychiatry. with the goal of really building out this complete care platform that integrates uh, social and emotional support with with the physical and then applying it to some of the other myriad um, underserved women's health needs that exist today. And and do you feel like kind of the insurance market will kind of meet the the need there uh, and and cover all the things that you have in mind? Or do you think you're going to need sort of expansions to, to make it all work? Yeah. Well, okay. Interesting question. On the abortion side, which, um, not related to the complete care model as a whole, but on the abortion side, it's been interesting because Medicaid is our primary focus there, given, um, you know, the the average needs of our patient. And um, the codes just don't exist yet for telemedicine abortion. Um, 
they've been bundled in a way in the past that does require a lot of unnecessary in-person testing. And so there is a lot of work to be done there to create a billing system that's actually sustainable um, for, uh, for this model. Fortunately, you know, other folks are invested in, in seeing the same come to fruition. Um, and so we have, um, you know, good partners in advocacy there. On the sort of like complete care side, that is yet to be seen. I think that ultimately our goal will be to just use, um, you know, technology and other scalable methods to keep the out-of-pocket costs as low as we can. Things like community, of course, can scale organically really well. Um, and so having a model that's not reliant on insurance, I think, would really be the goal. So in looking at your, your background, um, there's so much stuff, like it's, it's not a normal background in terms of like the variety of things you've done, a place you live. So I'm just going to like name a bunch of stuff and then, then you <laughs> untangle it for us and tell us how it'll get together. So, you know, college in St. Louis, you worked intern in the Bloomberg administration, Bain in Dallas, Uber, lived in Nairobi, lived in Johannesburg, San Francisco, business school at Harvard. It makes sense of this for us. Yeah. Um, essentially, in school, uh, my interest was more on sort of the international development, global health side. Um, and so I studied that as well as business, thinking that business has this sort of really scalable and sustainable way to drive that kind of impact um, without, frankly, being overly reliant on donor interests. You can really create a product that centers your end user as opposed to external funding sources. Um, so coming out of school, I thought I just wanted to sort of hone those business, uh, business skills a bit, went to Bain for a few years. And then, uh, interestingly enough, was sort of, I was leaving Bain and deciding between two options. I was going to join an agricultural nonprofit in Ethiopia. Uh, as, or, as one as one does, most people from Bain do go to agricultural nonprofits in Ethiopia after that. That's sort of the natural <laughs> career path, yeah. yeah. Um, or uh, join Uber. Um, I had uh, a former boss working there at the time who was um, loving it uh, and very actively recruiting me, telling me, you know, and which is absolutely right, that this is sort of the growth story of a decade and the learning opportunity will be unparalleled. He also said, you know, we will likely be launching Nairobi soon. So if you really want to go back to East Africa, um, you'll likely have the chance to do that. So started in the New York office. Um, another thing that was just really compelling, I thought at the time, is that uh, the drivers there were making $75 an hour. Um, and I, you know, just sort of like the scalable engine for on demand uh, work creation was, was really interesting to me. So um, after about six months in, in New York, did move out to Nairobi to help launch the product there. Um, it, was, it was really great. Did learn a lot, learned a lot about operating in scrappy circumstances, both because of Uber's stage at the time and also because of how different the market that I was working in was. Um, yeah, what was launched? In, so in Nairobi, if you're launching the market, are you trying to convert taxi drivers? Are you bringing in other kinds of people? And then, like, what is the incumbent industry sort of threat? Yeah, so this was a really fun piece of it because when we first entered the market, um, we approached existing car services um, and said, you know, hey, are you interested in coming onto this platform? And it was very different from the U.S. because there, for the most part, um, the drivers themselves could not afford to own their own cars. So they were essentially employees of, um, of someone else, which is sort of counter to the overall Uber model. Um, 
the longer we worked there, and especially in um, conveying to the sort of fleet owners the value of incentivizing their drivers by their own performance, um, we saw more and more of those drivers saving up enough to buy their own car to work for themselves, and then eventually often buying additional cars to bring more people into the system and creating the sort of like scalable network for um, entrepreneurship in its own way. And so um, that was really cool and, and rewarding to see. Uh, so, and then had you up in Johannesburg? Yeah. So after Kenya, I went over to San Francisco headquarters for a bit. Um, but what, were you, what were you doing there? There I was working on, I was, it was called the pro team. I was working on some interesting like product work, some random things like uh, global ops for Uber ice cream, help scaling uh, cash payments, which is something I'd worked on in Kenya. Um, sort of like an internal SWAT team consultant position. And then from San Francisco to Johannesburg? Yeah. So missed sort of the early building days, switched over to Uber Eats, which was new at the time. And then I actually first helped launch uh, that in Stockholm and then ended up doing similar work um, as I did in Nairobi, but overseeing a team to help launch Uber Eats um, across um, Middle East and Africa. Interesting, interesting. Uh, yeah, it's funny. I, I, uh, I just got off a call with your, your former boss uh, about oh, yeah? Cloud Kitchens and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and where that fits into all of this. So, uh, you know, it's, it's been on my mind. Um, so let me wrap up with a question of, so you're, you're really a business person, right? Bain, Uber, Harvard Business School, founder of a startup. But you're now, whether you mean to or not, you're an activist, right? Um, how do you kind of reconcile those two things in your head? Did you think that you would be an activist? Does it come naturally to you or is it much harder? Just like it's, it's a really interesting juxtaposition. Yeah, that is, I mean, it's such a good question and it is certainly a transition. I think... Um, I've always tried to approach problems from sort of like the operational side of things, really trying to create like, you know, strategic plans to achieve the goal I want, which is necessarily as aligned with some elements of activism, the public facing side of things and really taking, you know, strong positions in a way to, to rally towards, um, towards that outcome. But I think in, for any founder, that is a skill that one must learn and um, just practicing and, and trying to become more comfortable with it um, as I go. Cool. All right. Seems like so far so good. All right. Um, Flashy Kiki, how, how do people find you? How do they find Hey Jane? How do they take advantage of this? Yeah. So shameless plug, we are doing a lot of hiring. Um, you could check us out at heyjane.co um, and we have a link to um, hiring pages there. There we go. Kiki Freeman, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>